One of the key attractions at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and there are many, is the U-505 submarine. This isn't just any old submarine. This submarine was captured by U.S. forces at the height of World War II, and this event changed the course of the war for America. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Once again, loyal listener Rich Hughes suggested the topic for this week's Chicago History Podcast. Thanks, Rich. Follow Rich, an outstanding photographer, on Instagram at Canyon Ducky with an IE. He refers to himself in his Insta bio as an expat from Colorado. But trust me, this guy is pure Chicago. His website is richhughesphotography.com. As always, if you have a topic you'd like me to consider for a future episode, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. You can also record a voice message by going to chicagohistorypod.com and clicking on the microphone in the lower right corner. To explain the U-505 submarine and its importance, we first need a very abridged version of World War II and how this sub came under U.S. control. On September 1st, 1939, Germany's Adolf Hitler invaded Poland. In defense of Poland, two days later, France and Great Britain declared war on Germany. Unfortunately, the German advance was so overwhelming, Poland surrendered just two weeks after the invasion. In 1940, using a style of war called Blitzkrieg or Lightning War, German troops utilized surprised air attacks along with fast-moving forces to dominate its foes. By the middle of summer, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Norway... Denmark and the Netherlands had all surrendered. By July 1940, Britain became a prime focus of Hitler's attacks. The German Air Force called Luftwaffe went after Britain's Royal Air Force's airfields, followed by a total blockade preventing crucial supplies from entering the country. After Britain sustained the loss of 11 destroyers to the German Navy over a 10-day period, that's a month, Newly appointed Prime Minister Winston Churchill requested help from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. FDR responded by exchanging 50 destroyers for 99-year leases on British bases in the Caribbean and Newfoundland. On September 27, 1940, Germany, Japan, and Italy signed something called the Tripartite Act, and in doing so, joint forces to create the Axis powers. U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Lend-Lease Act on March 11, 1941, which authorized U.S. ships to carry supplies across the Atlantic Ocean to Britain and other countries fighting the Axis powers. While Hitler had ordered his forces to destroy supply lines to Britain, he expressly forbade any attacks on American ships. Hitler's goal was to keep the U.S. out of the war for as long as possible. 
One day after Japanese planes and submarines carried out an attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the U.S. declared war on Japan. On December 12, 1941, Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S., and just like that, the Atlantic Ocean was no longer safe for American ships. Some of the most consistently aggressive attacks on supply ships came from German U-boats, ships designed to spend most of their time above water. When a target was spotted, the U-boats would submerge and fire torpedoes, shredding the hulls of passenger and supply ships, sending them to the ocean floor. To give you some context, in 1942 alone, U-boats sank 1,150 Allied ships, sending thousands of men to their deaths and 7.8 million tons of vital war supplies to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The Allies responded by creating hunter-killer task groups, which helped protect ships and convoys by tracking down and destroying German U-boats. The Germans countered this by creating wolf packs, the largest of which, with over 40, yes, 40 U-boats, attacked two convoys of 100 Allied ships. 21 merchant ships were destroyed with many lives lost. The Class 9 U-505 submarine, built during the second half of 1940 in Hamburg, Germany, launched in May of 1941 and was commissioned on August 26, 1941. At nearly 1,100 tons, it was 251 feet, 10 inches long at completion. Fun fact, during the warmer months, the temperature in the engine room of the U-505 could go higher than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. A regular uniform in this climate was sneakers and a pair of boxers. Also interesting slash surprising, the average age of the U-boat crew was 20 years old. On U-505, only three of the 56 enlisted men in that crew had ever served in a submarine before. In May of 1944, to combat the continuing onslaught of German Wolfgang Packs, a new hunter-killer task group, 22.3, was formed. It consisted of a small anti-submarine escort carrier named the USS Guadalcanal, supported by five light destroyer escorts, the USS Chalatin, the USS Flaherty, USS Jenks, USS Pillsbury, and USS Pope. All totaled, there were 800 men on these ships. Heading up Task Group 22.3 was Captain Daniel V. Gallery Jr., who had success in January of 1944 as leader of USS Guadalcanal in Task Group 21.12, which sank three German submarines. It was Gallery who first conceived of the idea of capturing a U-boat. More on that in a bit. Chicago Connection, Daniel Gallery attended St. Ignatius High School, now known as St. Ignatius College Prep, on the near west side slash Little Italy in Chicago, prior to his appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy in 1917. Gallery also wrestled for the U.S. in the 1920 Olympic Games in Antwerp, Belgium. 
Although it was credited with sinking eight Allied ships early in the war, the German sub U-505 suffered repeated damage while on patrols, malfunctions that may have been caused by sabotage, and had the additional distinction of the suicide of its second commanding officer. That officer shot himself while on board the sub while it was being attacked with depth charges. Powerful explosive devices dropped into the water to damage submarines. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. On the morning of June 4, 1944, the U-505 had been at sea for 81 days and had traveled 7,977 miles. It had been 19 months since the U-505 had sunk any merchant ships. The crew was tired, dirty, low on supplies, and eager to get home. On this day, the sub was 150 miles west of the coast of Rio de Oro, Africa, and headed north towards home to the German U-boat base at Lorient on the coast of occupied France. When the sound man on the sub called out propeller noise, a jolt went through the German crew. It was 11.10 a.m. when the U.S. destroyer Chatelaine radioed Frenchy to Blue Jay, I have a possible sound contact. The ship's sonar had picked up on something that could have been anything, but they made the decision to evaluate. Below the water's surface, the German captain of the U-505, Harold Lang, decided to ascend to periscope depth to have a look around. They popped up right in the middle of Task Force 22.3 and the aircraft carrier USS Guadalcanal, commanded by Captain Gallery. U-505 Captain Harold Lang had no way to know that U.S. Captain Gallery was not there to simply destroy his ship. He was there to take it. Capturing an enemy vessel at sea was rare. Even a severely damaged ship outfitted with modern weapons could blast any nearby foes. Submarine captains were also trained to scuttle, meaning deliberately sink ships to keep them from falling into enemy hands. To U.S. Captain Daniel Gallery, this may have been the day he had been anticipating and the one for which he had been training his men so relentlessly, the chance to board and capture a U-boat. The U-505 fired one torpedo, which did not strike any target, before the pilot of an F-4 Wildcat fighter plane from the USS Chatelaine spotted the sub's dark silhouette in the water. Opening up with his 50 caliber wing guns, the pilot radioed, I am fired at spot where sub is. 
As the Chatelaine followed the stream of bullets to track the sub, the USS Jenks and the USS Pillsbury also closed in. At 11.21 a.m., the Chatelaine dropped 12 standard depth charges, all exploded spraying geysers of water all over the deck of the ship. Within moments, a black slick of oil creeped up from below the water. The wildcat pilot shouted, You struck oil. Below the water, in the sub, the crew had heard what sounded like a chain being dragged across the hull, later realizing it was the sound of the wildcat fighter's plane's bullets striking the outer deck. When the depth charges exploded, they blew out the lights and jammed the rudder. Water began to flood the aft torpedo room. The Germans' air supply, already low, dropped to almost nothing. The captain gave the order to surface. The Wildcat pilot called out, Sub is surfacing. The U-505 rose from the depths, nose first, with water cascading off its gray skull like a whale. Nearby U.S. ships hammered the sub with machine gun and anti-aircraft fire, but Captain Gallery had ordered no heavy stuff. They merely wanted to cripple the U-505, not destroy it. With the hatch open, German sailors began to jump over the side of the sub, some with and many without life rafts. Captain Harold Lang was hit at the knees by a volley of bullets as he guided others out of the hatch. With its engine still running and its rudder stuck, the sub moved steadily toward the right, turning toward the USS Chatelaine. Fearing the sub was attacking, the captain of that vessel, Lieutenant Commander Dudley S. Knox, fired a torpedo at the sub. Captain Daniel Gallery radioed, Blue Jay to Blondie, I want to capture this bastard if possible. The torpedo missed its mark. Aboard the sub, a few remaining members of the crew, including Petty Officer Hans Gobler, scrambled to set charges using timers to blow up the sub. He and another crewmate worked to open a stuck diving valve to flood the submarine in case the charges did not go off. If they were able to open it, the sub likely would have sunk in less than one minute. Fortunately for U.S. forces, no amount of strength would get it open. Gobler then remembered the sea strainer, which allowed in water for use in washing and cooling engines. He opened that and ran for his life. The ship now closest to the wounded submarine was USS Pillsbury. Aboard that ship was Xenon Lycosius, a motor machinist's mate first class from Chicago and the son of Lithuanian immigrants who joined the Navy in 1940. Luke, as he was known, had gotten married just five weeks earlier. He was part of the 12-man crew aboard the Pillsbury trained to board subs. At 11.28 a.m., it appeared all Germans had jumped off the sub and an order came down to cease firing. For the first time since 1815, when American soldiers with flintlock pistols and swords climbed aboard a British man-of-war ship, the cry, away boarders, echoed through the air. Leading the boarding party from the USS Pillsbury was Lieutenant Albert L. David, the engineering officer. He and his crew quickly went to work disabling anything that might detonate and destroy the sub. His team also found the captain's quarters. Grabbing the German captain's charts, they smashed open some lockers and hit pay dirt. German code books. 
Xena and Nicosius or Luke heard water running. When he went to investigate, he found the open sea strainer. Water was not rushing in like a fire hydrant. It was more like a kitchen tap left running. He found the cap for the strainer about the size of a hubcap and got it into place. The water stopped. A few of the crew dug around the ship looking for souvenirs and took away guns and even a pair of binoculars. Above the water, on the surface, whaleboats from the USS Jenks and Chatelaine were picking up German sailors. At 12.45, roughly an hour and a half since the first contact, the Pillsbury moved up to prepare to tow the U-505. Orders came down to tow the boat to Bermuda, some 2,500 nautical miles away, so the U.S. Navy could study it for military intel. This would be the longest tow of the war and one that needed to be done in secrecy. Had the Germans discovered a sub had been captured, they likely would have changed all of their codes. Arriving in Bermuda, the U-505 was painted to look like an American sub and renamed the USS Nemo so that enemy forces would remain unaware. Only one German sailor died during the capture of U-505. The task group rescued the remaining 58 crew members from the sea. Considering U-boat submariners had a 75% casualty rate, the highest of all German forces during the war, Capture may have been the preferred alternative. USS Guadalcanal transported the men to Bermuda, where they were held for several weeks to await stateside preparations for their POW camp in Ruston, Louisiana. According to the Museum of Science and Industry website, quote, the U-505 capture yielded approximately 900 pounds of codebooks and documents, as well as two Enigma machines, making it the largest intelligence seizure in the Battle of the Atlantic. This information saved the U.S. Navy codebreaking team an estimated 13,000 computer hours and greatly aided their decoding work during the rest of the war. In 1945, Captain Gallery assumed command of the USS Hancock in time to be present during the September 2, 1945 surrender ceremonies in Tokyo Bay. At the end of the war, 153 U-boats were transferred to the Allies in British or Allied ports, and of those, 116 were scuttled as part of something called Operation Deadlight. 215 boats were scuttled or blown up by their crews. While there was talk of the U-505 being used for naval exercises, Captain Daniel Gallery's brother, Father John Ireland Gallery, was the one who first suggested bringing the U-505 to Chicago as a war memorial. Reverend Gallery was a veteran of World War I and was ordained in March of 1926. He served as a Navy chaplain in World War II and later served as pastor at St. Christina Church at 110th and Homan Avenue in Chicago. 
crazy fact. At the time that Father Gallery mentioned the idea of bringing the U-505 to the Museum of Science and Industry, the museum already had a file filled with repeated requests to the U.S. Navy for an obsolete submarine for display dating back 24 years. The U.S. Navy agreed to the request but set a fundraising goal of $250,000, a little more than $2.4 million in today's money, to move the U-505 the approximately 3,000 miles to Chicago. Donations began to pour in. Although the departure of the U-505 on May 14, 1954 from Portsmouth, New Hampshire was delayed due to bad weather, the boat was eventually towed down from New Hampshire on the St. Lawrence River and across four of the five Great Lakes to Chicago, a distance of 3,000 miles. A moving company from Indianapolis, Indiana, handled the last portion of the long trip, getting the sub from the water across the beach and then Lakeshore Drive at 57th Street in Chicago using a system of giant rolling pins. This was completed in 8 hours and 55 minutes. According to the article in the September 4, 1954 Delphos Current newspaper from Ohio, while 15,000 were on hand at the beginning of this unusual process, only 400 were on hand when the 1,100-ton U-505 reached its destination at 3.55 a.m., The September 7, 1954 Newport, Virginia Daily Express newspaper included a brief mention that the main speaker at the dedication of the U-505 would be Fleet Admiral William Bull Halsey. For you Paul McCartney fans, that is indeed the Admiral Halsey Paul McCartney sang about in Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey on his Ram album. Also scheduled to be part of the ceremony were members of the Navy boarding party responsible for capturing the sub. That same week, the sub was to be moved its final 350 feet to the permanent cradle made of reinforced concrete next to the Museum of Science and Industry. At a 1964 reunion at the Museum of Science and Industry, Daniel Gallery gave German Captain Harold Lang his binoculars back. When Lang died in 1967, Lang's wife donated them to the U-Boat Archives in Germany, where they are on display today. They are the only set of U-505 binoculars not in the Museum of Science and Industry's collection. Rear Admiral Daniel Vincent Gallery died in 1977 at the age of 75 and is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. In 1981, the USS Gallery was commissioned, named after Daniel Gallery and his brothers Philip and William, all three of whom served in World War II. Memorial Day weekend, 1989, nearly 45 years after the capture of the U-505, a group of U.S. Navy veterans and former crewmen from the U-505 met at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago to rededicate the newly renovated sub. 
In front of a crowd of 150 veterans and their families, retired Admiral Earl Tresino, 76, of Springfield, Pennsylvania, one of the boarding party during the capture, said, quote, They lost and we won, but we've become good friends. Many of the men in this engagement, both American and German, have been transferred to another realm by our supreme commander, but we must remember and honor them, for they will always be part of us. Many of the American sailors who attended had been assigned to various ships that surrounded the sub as it was towed to Bermuda. Two of the captured German sailors flew in from Europe for the event. A third, 65-year-old Hans Gobler, had a shorter trip from Elkhart, Indiana, less than a two-hour drive. Joseph Krauss, who flew in from southern Bavaria for the event, was 19 years old when he was the sub's helmsman. Quote, After we got the depth charge, I saw the ship jumping up, he said. I thought it would break. Krauss said he was happy to be friends with the American sailors now that the war was long over. Lieutenant Commander Edwin Hedlund, 78 at the time of this event, commanded one of the six ships that participated in the capture. He flew in from Tacoma, Washington, and had this to say, quote, There is nothing more dramatic than war events. To keep them secret is really a superhuman task, end quote. All members of Guadalcanal Task Group 22.3 received the Medal of Honor. Other awards presented for the capture included the Navy Cross, the Silver Star, the Legion of Merit, and the Distinguished Flying Cross. Xenon Nicosius, one of the first on board the sub, moved back to Chicago after the war and became an industrial roofer. He died in 2006 at the age of 87 and is buried at St. Casimir Catholic Cemetery off 111th and Costner. In 1989, the U-505 received National Historic Landmark designation, its historical significance listed as German submarine captured June 4, 1944, displayed as memorial to 55,000 Americans who died at sea in World War II. After nearly 50 years exposed to harsh Chicago winters, which rusted the hull, the U-505 was closed to the public in 2002 and eventually moved indoors to a climate-controlled 300-foot-long room 42 feet below ground at the Museum of Science and Industry, built to resemble a dry dock. It reopened in 2005. It has been painstakingly restored over the years following the guidance of not only historians, but by German submariners who knew the ship better than anyone and donated artifacts to the exhibit. There are five remaining U-boats in the world, with four of those accessible at museums. Two are in Germany, one in Liverpool, England, and of course, The U-505, right here in the greatest city in the world, Chicago. The U-505 is the only Class 9-1 left. Thank you for listening to today's episode about the U-505 German submarine in Chicago. 
while Chicago museums have not been able to consistently remain open due to safety procedures, you can take a virtual tour of the U505. I'll have links in the description to this episode. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions about anything covered today or anything to add. My email is chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will have plenty of pictures and news clippings related to the story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check it out and give us a follow. The Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible, especially museums. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.